Vigor Steve here. Hey, you've heard about the anabolic androgenic steroids, right? But what does that even mean? How do they even work? Well, that's what we're going to find out in this video and debunk the anabolic to androgenic ratio or rating system while we're at it. A brief rundown of what steroids actually are. We have glucocorticoid and corticosteroids, which modulate the immune system, regulate water balance, some of which are inherently catabolic, cortisol particularly, so let's forgo those and focus on the anabolic to androgenic steroids, which are all testosterone derivatives. We have direct testosterone derivatives, then dihydrotestosterone derivatives, and nitinor testosterone derivatives, also known as nandrolone derivatives. We're solely going to focus on those and find out where these anabolic or androgenic ratings, these arbitrary numbers, are actually coming from. The anabolic effects of steroids are considered to be the promotion of muscle growth, increased protein synthesis, increased lower blood cell production, which you might have to mitigate with blood donations, increased appetite, increased bone mineralization, enhanced recovery. And these are all effects that athletes or bodybuilders or anybody aspiring to be a part of the fitness community are after. Then we have the androgenic effects, which are basically boiling it down, directly related to the development of male sexual characteristics in both men and women. So when women take androgenic steroids, they can develop male sexual characteristics. So females out there, be careful. So besides changes to the reproductive organs, indirect androgenic effects are considered to be the growth of facial or body hair, accelerated hair loss related to androgenetic alopecia, deepening of the voice, prostate enlargement, menstrual irregularities, high blood pressure, acne, mood changes, increased libido, even though the ultimate byproduct of increased libido is conception, which is a very anabolic process, both the mother and the baby will be in a highly anabolic state, but after a baby is born, you might be highly stressed and thus in a catabolic state. Right? So um, do some research before you start taking androgenic steroids. And of course, the downregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary testes axis, testicular atrophy, subfertility or complete infertility, where you have azoospermia within your ejaculate, that's all considered to be androgenic effects. Now, these androgenic effects are generally not what we're after, right? Some guys like to take anabolic androgenic steroids to deepen their voice or for other uh, hormone replacement therapy purposes, but it's the anabolic effects that we're really after and the androgenic effects are considered to be side effects. Oh, and as a quick side note, while gynecomastia might technically be an anabolic process, it's not considered to be an anabolic or androgenic effect of the steroids that we're taking. This is basically direct development of female sexual characteristics related to estrogens. So if you see gynecomastia forming while you take anabolic to androgenic steroids, those are secondary feminizing or demasculinization side effects, right? So right, look into aromatized inhibitors or selective estrogen receptor modulators if gynecomastia formation slowly starts to creep up on you. Now you would assume that the medical community is after the androgenicity of steroids for treatments revolving around the development of male sexual characteristics. Androgen replacement therapies like testosterone replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy in adult men or androgen deficiency therapies in teenagers the treatment of subfertility or infertility in adult men, and more recently, masculinizing transgender hormone replacement therapy in women who identify as men. So back in the day, halotestin, methyltestosterone, dianabol, and provirin were all prescribed in various treatments revolving around androgen replacement therapies, right? I'll put their anabolic to androgenic ratings on the screen. 
Back in the days, those were used. But nowadays, uh, most medical uh, practitioners focus on testosterone replacement therapy, which has an anabolic to androgenic rating of 100 because testosterone is the base, the standards of the anabolic to androgenic ratings. So testosterone is mostly used in androgen replacement therapies nowadays, both for men and women, and human chorionic uh, gonadotropin and follicle-stimulating hormone are mostly used in fertility protocols. So even though the androgenicity might have been one of the reasons why a particular steroid was matched to a particular treatment back in the day, it seems that the androgenic rating of steroids doesn't really have place in a medical community currently. And you would also assume, and this holds a lot more merit nowadays, that steroids with a high anabolic to androgenic rating would be preferred in the treatments of anemia, osteoporosis, wasting diseases, and to improve protein synthesis after trauma or surgery or prolonged immobilization. Primabolin, Nandrolone, Anavar, and Anadrol are all still being used in various treatments revolving around anabolism. I'll put their anabolic to androgenic ratings on the screen and you see that there's quite a bit of a dissociation. Back in the day, Trimbolone with an anabolic to androgenic rating of 500 uh, was still used, but up until the 1980s where it was discontinued. So maybe back in the days, uh, they didn't really look at that, but nowadays the anabolic rating still holds merit in medical settings. So Steve, where in the hell do these anabolic to androgenic ratings actually come from? And I'm glad you asked. They come from the anabolics books written by William Llewellyn. The latest release is the 11th edition, published in 2017. I'll link it down below. You'll have to purchase it, but it's well worth the read. William Levelin is a scientist and researcher in the field of human performance enhancement and a former illicit steroid user. And he's also an honorary lecturer at the Liverpool Johns Morse University, a former columnist for Muscular Development Magazine, and the owner of Roytest, where you can use colorful reagents to test if the anabolic androgenic steroids that you have at home actually contain the active pharmaceutical ingredient as mentioned on the vial or bottle. And contributing authors for the Anabolics 11th edition include Willem Kort, who is the founder of Ergolog and Ergogenics websites, Dr. Tom O'Connor, also known as the Anabolic Doc, who has a YouTube channel and I believe he has his own hormone optimization clinic, Jake Shelley, who is a freelance journalist writing about anti-doping in sports in various magazines, and he was one of the first to talk about meldonium, meldronate, back in 2016. As well as Dr. George Tuliatos, also known as Dr. Testosterone. He has the occasional interview here and there over at the Muscular Development YouTube channel and perhaps some collaborations at other places. He's a physician specialized in biopathology, former competitive bodybuilder, and he's mostly working with Greek bodybuilders to um, you know, help them with performance-enhancing drug risk mitigation. All right, let's start scrolling through the Anabolics 11th edition all the way down to page 17, where William mentions the anabolic to androgenic disassociation. A lot more on that later in this video. I quote, in order to first assess the anabolic and androgenic potential of each newly developed steroid, scientists had generally used rats as a model. To judge androgenic potency, the typical procedure involved the post-administration measure percentage of growth of the seminal vesicles and ventral prostate. These two tissues will often respond unequally to a given steroid, however. So the average of the two figures is used. Anabolic activity was commonly determined by measuring the growth of the levator-ani muscle, which is a sexual organ, not skeletal muscle. In integrating both measures, the anabolic index is used, which relates to the ratio of anabolic to androgenic response for a given steroid. An anabolic index greater than 1 indicates a higher tendency for anabolic effect, 
and therefore classifies the drug as an anabolic steroid. And of course, using testosterone as a reference here, testosterone has an anabolic index of one, and anything over that has a greater anabolic effect. There is some variance between experimental results and the actual real-world experiences with humans, but with a few exceptions, designations based on the anabolic index are generally accepted. Maybe not after watching this video, though. Uh, below are discussed a few factors that greatly affect anabolic to androgenic disassociation. Then we scroll down to page 19, where the relative binding assays are mentioned. Another way of evaluating the potential ratio of anabolic to androgenic activity is the practice of comparing the relative binding affinity of various steroids for the androgen receptor in rat skeletal muscle versus the prostate. When it comes to real-world use in humans, anabolic steroids do not always behave in 100% uniformity with their anabolic and androgenic profiles as determined by the animal models. So all such figures need to be taken with a grain of salt. But honestly though, I would recommend you guys to take all of this with so much salt that there's no salt left for the salty educators that seem to permeate in our space. I collected all of the anabolic to androgenic ratings from the Anabolics 11th edition. I'll put them on the screen right now. It's an easy to understand list, including the reference standards that each anabolic androgenic steroid was compared to. I added in the alternative chemical names in case you're not really familiar with the name that is on the screen, as well as all of the commonly used uh, and known brand names and classified all of these steroids according to the administration route. So you don't have to. And as all of these ratings are scrolling on the screen, you see a common occurrence. The standard in many cases isn't just testosterone, it's also testosterone propionate, which has an ester, or it's methyl testosterone, which isn't really bioidentical to the testosterone you produce endogenously, and neither is it bioidentical to the testosterone that rats produce. And as I alluded to earlier, testosterone with an anabolic to androgenic rating of 100 each, is its own standard, right? Comparing testosterone endogenously to exogenous testosterone yields an anabolic to androgenic rating of 100 each. And then we have another outlier. Trimbalone, the reference standard, is nandrolone acetate, giving it an anabolic and androgenic rating of 500 each. But I thought trimbalone was five times more potent than testosterone. I thought that the reference standard for trimbalone was testosterone, not nandrolone acetate, which has an ester, more on that later, right? I'm a little bit confused and upset already. When you look at the oral anabolic androgenic steroids, you see that in many cases, testosterone, testosterone propionate, or methyl testosterone are used as their reference standard. Going down further, and there's a lot of uh, data on the screen, so let's wait patiently while the scroll is going on. And we'll discuss some of these in depth later on in this video. For the sublingual or buccal anabolic androgenic steroids, we have methyl testosterone and testosterone, we have uh, transdermal anabolic androgenic steroids, clostable dihydrotestosterone and testosterone, subdermal anabolic androgenic uh, steroid implants in the form of trimbalone, but that's only in the context of cattle and testosterone testopil implants. We have ophthalmaltic anabolic androgenic steroids, basically eye drops in the form of nandrolone, and intranasal anabolic androgenic steroids in the form of testosterone, also known as Natesto. Now, as you guys saw, the reference standards for all of these anabolic androgenic steroids was either testosterone, testosterone propionate, methyl testosterone, and the sole outlier being nandrolone acetate being compared to trimbalone. Can we do some dubious extrapolation using math, not magnets, right? Not magnets. We're going to use math to see how trimbalone compares to testosterone. 
First, I want to mention that um, nandrolon acetate is an ester. But when you look at the anabolic androgenic rating of Phenajet, it's 500 to 500, which is uh, trembolone acetate. But Trendable, trembolone inethate, also has an androgenic to anabolic rating of 500. And uh, Parabolin, trembolone hexahydrobenzocarbonate, also has an androgenic to anabolic rating of 500 each all being compared to nandrolone acetate. So if we don't have to care about the ester, right? Acetate is irrelevant, the enetate is irrelevant, uh, hexahydrobenzocarbonate is irrelevant. Again, using some highly dubious and speculative math, comparing nandrolone to the reference standard of testosterone, extrapolating that using testosterone as the reference standard for trembolone, that would give trembolone an anabolic rating of 625 and an androgenic rating of 185. Interesting. Now, that isn't right, right? I mean, we can't use math to kind of calculate it that way. We need to have uh, actual scientific evidence to kind of determine what Tremblone uh, does anabolic-wise and androgenic-wise when compared to testosterone or, you know, if that is not available compared to testosterone propionate or maybe even methyl testosterone. But I'm still highly curious where this anabolic to androgenic rating of Tremblone compared to nandrolone acetate actually stems from. So I went through all the references of the Anabolics 11th edition. Every segment of Trembolone lists six citations. I went through all of them and didn't find anything about Trembolone being compared to Nandrolone acetate. So please, let's put the community to work. If you can reproduce this Hershberger bioassay comparing Trembolone to Nandrolone acetate, post it down below. I'm very interested in reading it. I've done a lot of research. I found close to 10 other more recent Hertzberger bioassays comparing uh, Trembolone to testosterone propionate. And the anabolic and androgenic effects are quite different from what is being listed in the Anabolics 11th edition. The ones that I was able to find, the general consensus seems to be that Trembolone mostly has an anabolic effect on the levator ani muscle and less of an androgenic effect on the ventral prostate and seminal vesicles and a couple other organs which are included in the highly updated, highly standardized version of the Hershberger bioassays, which were established in about 2011, but a lot more on that later. Don't worry, we'll go over all of it. So some of the authors also point out that the androgenic effects, uh, again, on the prostate tissue, might be associated not just to the steroid that was being administered, but also testosterone, diodotestosterone, and indirectly estradiol. I mean, if you start looking at the prostate health and prostate cancer, it seems that all of these have some sort of contributory role. So the androgen receptor concentration, which might be increased from estrogens, also enhance androgen-mediated gene transcription, and these effects are predominantly noticeable in the prostate as well as in skeletal muscle, right? So a couple holes we are already starting to poke into these Hershberger bioassays. Now hold on before we start blowing our loads and point out exactly what's wrong with all of these Hershberger bioassays until they were standardized, all of the Hershberger bioassays, which were somewhat included in the Anabolics 11th edition, let's just briefly run down what the Hershberger bioassays are actually all about. Hershberger bioassays in rats, or the Hershberger tests, were first described in 1953 by L.G. Hershberger, E.G. Shipley, and R.K. Meyer at the Department of Zoology at the University of Wisconsin, and they were originally designed as a short-term in vivo screening to test or assess the anabolic or androgenic effects of steroids on the reproductive track. So in this original assay of 1953, which is already a modified version of previous assays, 
non-mature pre-puberty rats were castrated to reduce endogenous testosterone production to as little as possible. Castrated rats were administered with various testosterone derivatives for eight consecutive days, after which they were killed and dissected to assess the size changes of the levator ani muscle in the ventral prostate and the seminal vesicle. So that's three org organs versus the five organs which are included in the updated standardized version. Just keep in mind that this is very important to understand. Just because you castrate a rat doesn't mean that endogenous testosterone levels or dihydrotestosterone or estrogen levels bottom out. That takes several days. And just because you castrate a rat doesn't mean that the adrenal glands are no longer functioning. So you still get a pregnenolone production and DHA production, which ultimately converts into testosterone and then dihydrotestosterone or estrogens. So you're never 100% bottomed out when you castrate a rat. And especially if you start uh, administering steroids from one day to the next, you have one day castration and the next day you start administering exogenous uh, testosterone derivatives there is quite a bit of overlap regarding uh, the reproductive tract. So many of these Hertzberger bioassay results in the beginning is not just nandrolone or not just another testosterone derivative. It's testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, estrogens, and whatever else that they're administering exogenously. Now that aside, weight increases of the levator ani muscles was used to determine the anabolic effect of the steroid. This muscle was chosen because it lacks 5-alpha reductase enzyme activity and the weight increases in the ventral prostate and seminal vesicles determine the androgenic effect. Now, even though the levator ani muscle doesn't contain 5-alpha reductase enzymes themselves, if you use a reference standard of testosterone, um, converting into dihydrotestosterone or estrogens in peripheral tissue, it doesn't matter if the levator ani muscle um, doesn't uh, have a 5-alpha reductase enzyme and thus the testosterone can't convert into dihydrotestosterone locally, it can convert somewhere else, end up in the bloodstream, and then somehow activate or interact with the androgen receptors of the levator ani muscle, ventral prostate, or seminal vesicles, right? So I feel that the reference standard of these early Herzberger bioassays, uh, if the reference standard is testosterone, it's not just testosterone, it's testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, estrogens, and everything else that falls alongside of that as part of the sex hormone panel. Uh, weight changes in the kidneys, liver, brain, testes, and other organs were observed in many of these Hershberger bioassays, but not reported. Neither were changes in hair length, shedding of the hair, hair thickness, uh, gynecomastia tissue, etc. All the commonly associated side effects that we associate with androgenicity of steroids. All right, let's start um, discussing a little bit of what is mentioned in the early Hershberger bioassay. In this study, a modification of the Eisenberg and Gordon myotropic assay is proposed, which eliminates the 23-day post-castration rest period, which I think is very, very, very important to let the testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, and estrogen levels come down bottom out to basically zero, so you don't have an overlapping effect uh, for the animals and reduces total assay time from 31 days to only eight days. All right, so you castrate and you get busy. The advantages are, one, the rapid turnover of animals reduces the required size of the assay colony, and two, it becomes possible to start an assay at any time without a long post-castration delay. When you look at the updated versions, they reintroduce the post-castration delay. I think it's uh, seven to 10 days, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Further on, male rats of the Holtzman-Rolfmeyer strain, 21 days of age, were castrated, 
Each animal was given daily a subcutaneous all injections of the test substances for seven days, beginning with the day of castration, right? So you castrate and you start injecting. On the eighth day, 22 to 26 hours after last injections, the animals were sacrificed and investigated. Now here we see uh, some of the early results, and it's very easy to see that the sample size of rats, actually quite small, maybe nine rats, six rats, four rats, and then various dosages, right? We have a very large sample size of the con castrated control rats, 25 rats, and then you see the baseline uh, body weight and the ventral prostate weight and seminal vesicle weight and electro ani weight. And then they start comparing testosterone propionate, testosterone, 19 or testosterone, androlone, androsterone, esterone, estradiol dipropionate, progesterone, and a couple other sex hormones, which are part of this Hirschberger bioassay, the first one, at various sample sizes, various dosages, keeping track of the body weight changes and the changes in the sex organs. They use some fancy calculations to determine the levator ani to ventral prostate ratio. And that is the foundation for the anabolic or myotropic effects or the androgenic effects, which then lay the foundation for the anabolic to androgenic ratio, which is included in the Anabolics 11th edition. Since this early Hertzberger bioassay of 1953, um, these were again modified and standardized and close to 700 potential androgens were investigated regarding their anabolic and androgenic effects on the levator muscle, ventral prostate, and seminal vesicles. Most of these assays were performed in the 1960s and early 70s, and then in 1976, the large majority of the Hersberger bioassays, which proved that particular compounds, testosterone derivatives, had anabolic and androgenic effects and properties, all of these were included in the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, Volume 43, titled Anabolic Androgenic Steroids, written by Charles D. Kokakian. This book is huge. It goes over most of the animal models performed up until 1976. So not only the Hirschberger bioassays, but a lot of other animal models, not only in rats, but in rabbits and dogs, all kinds of animals, right? It's, it's very, very inclusive when it comes to the animal models performed up until 1976 at the time of publication. Um, a lot of uh, interesting factoids stem from this book including the anabolic to androgenic ratings, which are included in the Anabolics 11th edition and the previous edition released earlier at that point in time. So when we go down to page 364, right? A lot of scrolling we have to do. At the myotropic to androgenic assays as a method for evaluating the disassociation of anabolic from androgenic activities in animal models. Here they mention Androgenicity was assessed on the basis of increase in the weight of the ventral prostate gland. Subcutaneous injections were made daily except Sunday. So that's uh, six days on, one day off. It's a little bit different from the original Hirschberger bioassay. Beginning one week after castration. So that is good. At least they let the endogenous uh, testosterone, dieted testosterone, estrogens, and everything else decline to the point you only get a slight conversion from neurosteroids produced in the adrenal glands. So let's see, beginning one week after castration and continuing for a total of nine injection days. And since they're skipping Sunday, that's 10 days when you look at the calendar. Oral studies were conducted in the same manner, except that total daily dose of the test agent was divided into two equal portions administered by stomach. And I can't believe I had to do this, but I had to Google this by ID abbreviation. It stands for bis in D, which is Latin for twice per day. The index of disassociation of myotropic from androgenic activity was determined as a ratio of the ventral prostate response 
to deliver any response, similar to the original Hirschberger bioassays. The data were plotted on a log-dose response basis for calculation of relative activities. Um, so again, I'm not entirely sure which kind of calculations they used. My math skills are quite good, but reading throughout this entire book, um, I can't remember seeing an exact breakdown of how to calculate the levator muscle to the ventral prostate ratio leading into the uh, myotropic or anabolic to androgenic response. Then as we scroll down to page 389 up until 391, three pages of results, we see a boatload of bundled results stemming from the various standardized Hirschberger bioassays performed between 1956 up until 1967 based on the references which are included at the bottom of this table. This is probably the best indexed standardized Hirschberger bioassay test that you can find, or at least up until uh, 1967, which are included up until 1976, which, when this book was published. And as we're going through this list, I'm sure you're noticing, albeit at the magnitude of 100, a large portion of the anabolic to androgenic ratings from the Anabolics 11th edition written by William Lowen have an overlap with the results of the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, Volume 43, Anabolic Androgenic Steroids, written by Charles Kokakian. Now, before we start comparing, a quick explanation of the route of administration as part of this list of all the Hirschberger bioassays. You see here PAR dot, which stands for the parental route, which refers to the injectable administration of nutrition or medications by bypassing the gastrointestinal tract. The parental route of drug delivery includes subcutaneous, intramuscular, intravenous, and intrarectal administration. I think in the context of these Hirschberger bioassays, it's all subcutaneous. And P.O. dot stands for per os, which is Latin for per mouth or by mouth. It is the oral route of administration often denoted to PO. The bioavailability of oral administration is affected by the amount of drug that is absorbed across the intestinal epithelium and first, per, first pass metabolism. So. Uh, of course, the injectable route has the highest bioavailability and the per os by mouth administration route has lower bioavailability, right? Keep this in mind when we start analyzing the results. All right, so let's start comparing the Anabolics 11th edition to this uh, handbook of experimental pharmacology volume 43 anabolic androgenic steroids. Let's start uh, with anadrol, oxymetolone, which has 100% overlap with the results, albeit that it's only from one result included of the Hirschberger bioassays performed on oxymetolone. So in the Anabolics 11th edition, you see that oxymetolone has an androgenic rating of 45 and an anabolic rating of 320, where the reference standard is methyl testosterone administered orally. Then if you go to the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology and uh, you know we go down the list of oxymetolone, you see that the anabolic activity by myotropic effects is 3.2 and the androgenic effects is 0.45. So with a multitude of 100, that yields an androgenic effect of 45 and an anabolic effect of 320. So this is a 100% overlap with the Anabolics 11th edition regarding oxymetolone using one, just one, Hertzberger bioassay. But when you go down the entire list, of the anabolic androgenic ratings of the Anabolics 11th edition, you sometimes see ranges. I'm sure you guys saw that in the entire list when I highlighted that on screen. So if we can include an entire range solely based on the handbook of experimental pharmacology, we can kind of group everything in a certain administration routes and reference standards. 
that a myotropic or anabolic uh, rating of oxymethylone compared to methyl testosterone injections would be anywhere between 1.46 to 4.4 or 146 to 440. Whereas the oral myotropic rating of uh, oxymethylone compared to methyl testosterone is 3.2. The androgenic rating is 0.2 to 0.45 based on oral methyl testosterone, whereas with the injections, it's 0.31 up until one, right? So you can multiply that with 100 if you want to. And then based on injectable testosterone, the myotropic rating of oxymethylone is 2.3, whereas the androgenic rating is 0.64 up until one. So if we start pulling everything together, um, and multiply everything with the hundreds, then you would say that the anabolic rating of oxymethylone, based on all of these results from 1976, the anabolic rating would be 146 to 440, and the androgenic rating would be 31 to 100, using methyl testosterone, both orally and injectable, as a standard, alongside injectable testosterone as a standard. Okay, so we have oxandrolone with an anabolic rating of 322 to 630. Again, there's a range there and androgenic rating of 24 is included in the Anabolics 11th edition. And if we go to the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, we have two results, right, of the Hertzberger bioassays performed up until that time, where we see an overlap of the results uh, documented in the Anabolics 11th edition. So this is basically a one-on-one -on -one result compared to uh, what we all come to know and love. Nitrogen retention is 6.3 based on oral methyl testosterone, Myotropic or anabolic effects is 3.22 based on methyl testosterone injections, and androgenic effects is 0.24 based on methyl testosterone injections as well. So if you pull all of that together, um, we have uh, oral methyl testosterone and methyl testosterone injections that would yield uh, in a multitude of 100, an anabolic rating of 322 to 630, and an androgenic rating of 24. So based on William Levelin's logic, we can include the nitrogen retention and the myotropic effects into the anabolic rating and the androgenic effects into the androgenic rating. Moving over to methanolone, primabolin, with an anabolic rating of 88 and an androgenic rating of 44 to 57, with the reference standards being good old testosterone. And when we go to the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, you see that uh, William Levelin just took one of these Hersberger bioassays which are included, performed on methanolone and methanolone acetate, you see here the myotropic rating of 0.88 and an androgenic rating of 0.44 to 0.57. So even some of these Hersberger bioassays have a range regarding the results that they published. Um, yeah, it gets more interesting as we go along. So again, if you want to be all-inclusive of the results documented in the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, you would give a new rating system to methanolone with an anabolic rating of 30 to 88 and an androgenic rating of 1 to 57. So that's quite different from the results which are currently documented. And the standards would be oral methyl testosterone, injectable testosterone, and injectable testosterone propionate. Now with these three, there's a good amount of overlap and we can kind of explain where these anabolic to androgenic ratings are stemming from when comparing these results to the results of the Hersberger bioassays documented in the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology. But as you go down the list, it starts to kind of fall apart, or at least the Hersberger bioassays included are far from the results and ratings included in the anabolics books. As an example, dihydrotestosterone, an anabolic rating of 60 to 220 and an androgenic rating of 30 to 260 using testosterone and testosterone propionate as a reference standard. So that's a bit of a range, right? 30 to 260 and 60 to 220. 
But then when you look at the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, again, this is up until 1976, uh, none of the numbers overlap. And that keeps going and going and going. So based on these results, you would say that the anabolic rating of DHT is actually 26 to 250, and the androgenic rating of DHT is actually 53 to 153, which is somewhat similar, albeit not uh, entirely identical, with a reference standard of injectable testosterone and oral methyl testosterone. Now, I know what you're thinking, and don't be upset, don't be disappointed, right? We're all trying to learn as much as we can with the scientific evidence that we can find. So maybe uh, William Levelin found a boatload of different Hershberger bioassays that are documented in the uh, Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, even though that was published, well, uh, decades before the Anabolics 11th edition came to the market. So uh, I put everything together, right? I'll put it on the screen using the logic of William Levelin with the data of the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology, which again is the best aggregation of the standardized Hershberger bioassays, some of which are included in the Anabolics 11th edition, and starts comparing the rating systems on what uh, William Levelin uh, came to the conclusion of, and all of the results that Charles D. Kokakian pieced together. Now you see it here on the screen, and uh, some of the numbers are similar, and some of the numbers are very far apart. For example, halotestin. You would say it has an anabolic rating of 1900 and an androgenic rating of 850, being the standard oral methyl testosterone. But if you go with the handbook, it has an anabolic rating of 72 to 2820 and an androgenic rating of 46 to 950. It's a bit of a range here, with the standard being oral methyl testosterone and injectable testosterone. Scrolling down a little bit further, Nandrolone traditionally accepted an anabolic rating of 125 with an androgenic rating of 37 reference testosterone. Sounds good, right? Then you go through the uh, handbook, <laughs> you see that the anabolic rating is actually 73 to 492, an androgenic rating of 7.4 up until 31, so that's at least somewhat comparable, with a reference standard of oral methyl testosterone, oral and injectable testosterone, injectable testosterone propionate, and uh, comparing the decanoate and phenylpropionate esters of nandrolone, right? So uh, there's a bit of discrepancy here. Now, this is just piecing it together from uh, the best source I was able to find. And you got to keep in mind that a lot of these Hershberger bioassays, whether those are standardized or not, have been lost to the winds. Can't find them on PubMed, can't find them on Science Direct, can't find them anywhere else besides maybe the library. Uh, but I don't have the time and the resources to visit all of the libraries all over the world. Because again, a lot of these Hershberger bioassays have not been performed in a single location. They've been performed worldwide. Still, I did my due diligence researching all of the available Hershberger bioassays. I spent a good week going through all of them. These are the results from the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology. Everything that's listed there, at least the ones that I was able to find, all of the ones that I was able to find that were not included in the updated standardized version of 2011, which we'll get into. My conclusions are as follows, and you're going to be even more disappointed. If you look at all of the Hershberger bioassays, right, that we uh, come to know and love regarding their results of the anabolic to androgenic rating, you see that they use different kinds or strains of rats, so there's Sprock, Dolly rats, or Wister rats, or Fisher 344 rats, all of which have different body weights and respond differently to androgens and anti-androgens. 
different castration days, whether that's the 22 days, so that's pre-puberty or weanling rats, or 42 days to reaching, uh, you know, some of the rats already reach sexual maturity at 38 days, some of which are undergoing puberty. Sometimes they wait seven days after castration to let the endogenous hormone levels decline, so no endogenous testosterone or dihydrotestosterone testosterone or estrogens or everything in between, which could otherwise affect the results of the exogenously administered testosterone derivative. And sometimes they start the next day, as mentioned in the original Hirschberger bioassays. Sometimes they have a, a different exposure durations. Seven days, eight days, 10 days, sometimes even longer. Different dosage ranges, whether that's 0.2 milligrams or 0.4 milligrams per kilogram, or basically all over the place, like mentioned in the original Hirschberger bioassays. Sometimes they skip administrations on Sundays, but that's not always the case. Maybe a small portion of the researchers had to go to church on Sunday, while others are completely agnostic and just continue to grind day by day and administer the exogenous testosterone derivatives on a daily basis. Now, who knows, right? A different administration routes, whether that's oral or subcutaneous injections, different carrier oils, solvents, preservatives. I mean, in many of the Herzberger bioassays, they don't even specify what the carrier oils, solvents, and preservatives are, which all have a little bit of an overlap into the half-life. They're comparing different esterless steroid suspensions, whether that's through subcutaneous or oral administration, or a steroid solutions containing esters being acetate, propionate, or phenylpropionate, again, in different carrier oils. So there's a huge discrepancy there regarding the um, onset, peak and duration, half-life, active life, etc. Um, exceptions aside, you know, they're not comparing steroids to their parent hormone, so we're not comparing testosterone to testosterone derivatives or testosterone derivatives to other testosterone derivatives or testosterone to testosterone derivatives or nitinor testosterone to nitinor testosterone derivatives. Um, yeah, I would like to see that as well, but that's not even included in the updated uh, standardized version of the Hirschberger bioassays. Uh, they don't account for the difference in molecular weight, which is huge. We'll get to that. Or the established uh, calculated relative binding affinity, which is also huge. Uh, no mention of zinc, selenium, or other micronutrient administration. I mean, we all know that particular micronutrients can enhance and optimize androgen-mediated gene transcription. The only thing that was really consistent was either the 24-hour administration uh, for subcutaneous injections. So every day, basically on the same day, 24 hours apart, they would do the subcutaneous administrations, but sometimes they would skip Sunday and they would do uh, bi-administrations twice per day for the oral administrations. So a lot of room is left to be desired when it comes to these old Hertzberger bioassays. And if you want to draw conclusions from that, be my guest, but personally, I'm not going to. You know what, let's get nerdy because I can't get over the fact that these somewhat standardized Hertzberger bioassays didn't account for the molecular weight of the steroids compared to the reference standards. And some of the reference standards even included an ester. So um, the discrepancy between molecular weights is going to be significant. And since we're already way over time, might as well do another deep dive on the molar masses. So I did all of the calculations so you don't have to. I compared all of the injectable and oral anabolic androgenic steroids regarding the molar mass of them to the molar mass of the reference standards. So here we can take one testosterone, also known as dihydroboldenone, being compared to testosterone propionate as an example. The molecular weight, the molar mass of dihydroboldenone is 288.431, and the molecular weight molar mass of testosterone propionate is 344.495. 
But if you uh, remove the propionate, the ester, then you go with the actual testosterone, which is, uh, of course, bioactive. It's the testosterone that binds to the androgen receptor and the dihydrobaldenone that binds to the androgen receptor, not the ester. So we have to account for that. The net molar mass of testosterone is 288.420. So with some fancy calculation, we can see that the molecule ratio comparing dihydrobaldenone to testosterone propionate yields uh, regarding the actual molecule, which is biologically active, a molecule ratio of 1 to 0 0.701. So that's a 30% discrepancy. For every 1 milligram or 10 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams of dihydrobaldenone that you inject, regardless of however many molecules that is, you get 30% less molecules, less androgen receptor binding when you inject testosterone propionate at an equal amount of milligrams. And this goes on and on and on. I mean, I, I did all of the calculations. Look, these are the injectable steroids. Let that scroll a little bit, let that sink in. And these are the oral antibiotic androgenic steroids and their molar masses compared to the reference standards. I mean, this scroll is gonna take ages, so let's speed that up slightly. So to summarize, comparing the examined steroids versus the reference standard regarding their molar masses, they're gonna be anywhere between 29.9% less bioactive molecules or 49% more. I mean, what kind of range is that? 30% less or 50% more bioactive molecules comparing one steroid to the reference standard. Even, even if those protocols are exactly 100% the same. So one milligram versus one milligram could be 30% less molecules or 50% more. I mean, what are we talking about here? <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> Right? Although I'll be the first one to admit that although most of the time for the large majority of the steroids compared, it's only a 5 to 10% difference. So 5 to 10% less bioactive molecules or 5 to 10% more bioactive molecules. In my opinion, the only four Hersberger bioassays which are actually valid when you account for the molar mass is uh, testosterone versus testosterone, obviously, because it has the same molar mass of 288.42. And then comparing methyl-1 testosterone to methyl testosterone, the same molar masses. Mibilarone, also known as check drops versus methyl testosterone, same molar masses. And norethondrolone, also known as Nalvar, compared to methyl testosterone. Again, same molar masses of 302.458. Four out of almost 100. Insane. Now, before we throw in the towel, there is some hope, like I alluded to earlier, since October 2011, Herzberger bioassays have been fully standardized according to the OCSPP guideline 890.1400, the standard evaluation procedure. And even though the standardized Herzberger bioassay came, uh, was released seven years before the Anabolics 11th edition, I don't think that any of the updated Herzberger bioassays were included, right? I could be mistaken here. I did a good amount of researching regarding all of the standardized Hirschberger bioassays, which have been performed since October 2011, but I don't see much overlap with the anabolic to androgenic ratings documented in the Anabolics 11th edition. And even though it's now fully standardized, we can still poke plenty of holes in the study design. I quote, the current bioassay is based on the changes in weight of five androgen-dependent tissues in the castrated peripubertal male rat. It evaluates the ability of a chemical to elicit biological activities consistent with androgen agonists, antagonists, or 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. So 
the scope of the compounds is now significantly broadened. The five androgen-dependent tissues included in this test guidelines are the ventral prostate, the paired seminal vesicles and coagulating glands, the levator ani and bulbocavernosus muscles, abbreviated to LABC, this is at the base of the penis, uh, the glans penis, which is the tip of the penis, and the paired copers glands, also known as the bulbo-urethral glands, which are located between the prostate and bulbocavernosus muscles. Now, the changes in the corpus spongiosum and corpus cavernosum, which are parts of the penis that become erect, uh, were not measured. So now, we still don't know with these standardized Hersberger bioassays if steroids can actually grow, lengthen, or uh, increase the girth of the penis. I don't know if I'm disappointed or just upset, but I would still like to know if the corpus uh, spongiosum and corpus cavernosum uh, can be investigated with an updated standardized version of the Hersberger bioassay uh, in 2024, right? I, I'm willing to put up the funding. Let's find it out for a hard truth. So we're not limited to solely, uh, you know, dabbling our penises in Andrectim DHT cream. All right, further on, <laughs> I quote, in male rats castrated around the time of puberty, these five tissues all respond to androgens with an increase in absolute organ and tissue weight. These same tissues are stimulated to increase in weight by exposure to a potent reference androgen, since the castration removes the primary source of endogenous testosterone. Further on, the guideline recommends that the reference androgen agonist to be testosterone propionate. You guys want to do facepalm with me? We're comparing non-esterified testosterone derivative suspensions to testosterone propionate, which is esterified. Well, let's just proceed. Uh, at a dose of 0.2 milligrams per kilogram per day or 0.4 milligrams per kilogram per day. So at least there's not so much dosing discrepancy anymore. Now there's just an ester discrepancy. Nice work. The recommended reference androgen antagonist is flutamide at a dose of 3 milligrams per kilogram per day. Moving over to the dose formulations, an aqueous solution suspension is typically considered first. However, many androgen ligands are hydrophobic, uh, necessitating solution suspensions in oil, like corn oil or peanut oil, which is highly inflammatory in some humans sesame or olive oil. So at least no more monoethylene glycol or polyethylene glycol or propylene glycol. I mean, all of those highly, highly, highly inflammatory. But if you go down the medical literature, especially in the early 60s or 70s, propylene glycol was the way to go to suspend all of these anabolic androgenic steroids in. So imagine how much systemic inflammation all of the test subjects, whether those are animals or humans, experienced right we'll get into that in another deep dive at one point but to be fair they do mention that it is desirable that the toxic characteristics of the solvent be known and also be tested in a separate solvent only control group so you have uh, three groups basically one that gets oil only one gets the investigated anabolic androgenic steroids and one gets the control compound being testosterone propionate. So at least we're making some headway already. Moving over to the SAS procedures, the preparation of animals for treatment. After an initial acclimation period of several days upon receipt, the rats are castrated at postnatal day 42, so that's 42 days after birth, or thereafter, but not before. So a minimal of 42 days old, or maybe a couple days later and provided a recovery period of at least seven days following castration to allow for aggression in the target tissue. So that means seven days of uh, slowly but steadily becoming 
androgen and estrogen deficient. The 10 days of dosing can be initiated as early as postnatal day 49, so that's seven days after being castrated, but not later than postnatal day 60. It is recommended that age at necropsy uh, should not be greater than postnatal day 70. So there's basically a, a 20, 21 day a window of opportunity where these rats, after being castrated, can be administered with anabolic androgenic steroids in the reference standards uh, before the results might not be as valid as they would like it to be, albeit that I'm going to say that the results are still not going to be 100% valid because you're using testosterone propionate as a reference standard. Sake. Onwards, the dose administration, the guidelines recommend testosterone propionate be administered by subcutaneous injection at a dose of 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day. The route of administration for the test substance may be via oral, gavage, or subcutaneous injection. <laughs> Still comparing oral administration for subcutaneous administration. <sighs> Animals are dosed for 10 consecutive days at approximately 24-hour intervals. Okay, at least that's good. At least it's consistent with the dose level adjusted daily based on the concurrent body weight changes. Oh, wait a minute. So you're going to change the dose as the study progresses. So you might start at 0.4 milligrams and then bring the dose down to 0.2 milligrams. Is that the exact same dosage changes for the anabolic energetic steroid investigated in the reference standard being testosterone propionates? Uh, please specify, bro. The guideline recommends subcutaneous injections be administered in the dorsoscapular and or lumbar region and should not exceed 0.5 milligram per kilogram of body weight. So even though the administration uh, recommendation is 0.2 to 0.4 milligram per kilogram per body weight, uh, it does allow for a little bit higher than that, which could be anywhere between a 20% increase or a 250% increase. Standardized my... And if you thought all of this was bad, don't worry, I can confirm it with scientific evidence to drive the final nail into the coffin. A study performed by Brian et al. in October 2018 titled Development of a Curated Hersberger Database. In the abstract, they mention a systemic literature review was conducted to identify Hersberger bioassays for 3,200 chemicals, including those used to validate the OECD US EPA guideline assay. So that's the latest one, which was updated in October, 2011. Uh, the chemicals screened for endocrine activity and the library chemicals run in the US EPA's toxicology cast in vitro assays. For 134 chemicals that met predefined criteria. So uh, 3,200 3, chemicals uh, went through the Hersberger bioassays, but only 134 uh, matched the predefined criteria. Uh, experimental results were extracted into a database used to characterize uncertainty in results and evaluate the concordance of the Hersberger assays with other in vivo rodent studies that measure antigen responsive endpoints. And then as we scroll down to the conclusions, I quote, among chemicals tested in multiple Hersberger assays and meeting our criteria for evaluation, 28% of chemicals had disagreements between the study results. And in most cases, these differences uh, then cannot be explained by study protocol or dose level. In addition, we also found a lack of consistency between Hersberger assays conclusions and other in vivo assays measuring androgen responsive endpoints. Based on limited reproducibility of the Hersberger assays, it may be difficult to draw conclusions for chemicals. No In fact, 
chemicals screened for the US EPA's EDSP Tire 1 battery were only considered to have potential androgen pathways effects if a positive Herzberger assay result was corroborated by an additional positive in vivo study result. So you need two results to put it together to validate it. The added value of Herzberger data in an overall weight of evidence evaluation of a chemical's potential effect on the androgen pathway is not clear. Negative data do not necessarily rule out androgen receptor mediated effects. Really? Uh, the co-administration of testosterone propionate alone is enough to induce hepatic enzymes and may increase metabolism and thus limit the effect of the test chemicals. And furthermore, organ weight changes are not sensitive indicators of androgen receptor interactions and therefore, lack of a positive Herzberger result does not completely rule out androgen receptor mediated test chemical effects. A positive effect may be further difficult to interpret because the guideline protocols uses hypothalamic pituitary gonadal interruption or interrupted animals, and thus results may not be recuperated in other in vivo assays. If androgen receptor screening is the ultimate goal of Hirschberger assays, this could be more easily addressed by an androgen receptor in vitro assay, albeit one that could account for hepatic metabolism. Finally, we identified 49 chemicals with reproducible androgen pathway effects confirmed in more than one in vivo study. The hope is that these chemicals and the database may be used to develop alternative methods of androgen pathway screening. Well, it's 2023 now, and I haven't seen anything of the sorts. <laughs> so, uh, long story short, take it all with a grain of salt, as is mentioned in the Anabolics 11th edition. Um, going forward, I would not put any value on the anabolic ratings or androgenic ratings when it comes to assessing how potent an anabolic androgenic steroid is compared to testosterone or any other steroid for that matter. It's just a number on paper. It doesn't mean that you're going to get more effects or less effects or effects that are potentially only occurring on the uh, skeletal muscle. All right, and the androgenicity of steroids um, has only been uh, based on uh, reproductive organs, right? In castrated rats, not in humans, but that's not really what we're after or looking for when we uh, assess the potential side effects, right? We want to know the androgenic effects on the sebaceous glands and the hair follicle and other organs in the body and the skin, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would just look into drug selection regarding their unique characteristics. Those have already been well documented. And uh, I think that's a good subject for an upcoming video. What are the unique characteristics of all of the anabolic androgenic steroids which are out there? I'll leave it here. Thank you guys so much for watching. You can find everything that I'm associated with down below in the YouTube description section. Vickers crew, you guys know what to do. A anabolic and androgenic frontal bicep for you guys. Um, I, I guess my rating is about 50-50 right now because I'm relying on endogenous testosterone and looking at all of the reference standards of non-castrated rats. Uh, the anabolic and androgenic effects are kind of average. No, it is what it is, right? <laughs> Thank you guys so much for watching, and I'll see you in the next video.